Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so that people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. Welcome back to Series 6 of Helpful Social Work. I'm Jo. And I'm Jerry. And throughout this series, we are looking at equality and anti-oppressive practice and using the Equality Act in England as a framework. So we started um, back in April uh, 2021, revisiting the ethics and social work role around fighting discrimination. And each month now, we've been looking at um, inequality relating to a protected characteristic, um, a characteristic that the Equality Act um, protects in law, and considering how social workers can challenge discrimination. Um, and our conversations have been broader than the letter of the law. They've been, um, for example, last month, we were talking about equality in relation to marriage and civil partnerships. And we ended up talking a fair bit around considerations to do with equality relating to relationship status. And it's certainly good to see that um, this series is getting lots of downloads. Um, we hope that it's helping you reflect and it's certainly helping us. I think that's why our um, conversations are so broad because the more we look into this topic and think about it ourselves, the, the more we find um, related strands everywhere. So that's been really interesting for us. Um, we've had lots of downloads on our podcast from working from home. It's still a reality, um, a lot of the time for a lot of us, particularly at the moment. So if you're listening to us working from home, hello to you. You're not alone. We're all connected in this virtual world. Um, we really hope you enjoy the podcast, you know, so let us know what you're thinking by visiting our website, www.helpfulsocialwork.com, or by commenting on iTunes or on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast. And if you can, leave a review on iTunes um, because that helps other people find us. So that would be fantastic. Thanks. And I should just mention I had a really lovely email through the website from Sarah, who's a social work student, to say that she's finding the podcasts really useful in her course. So thank you for that. And hopefully students um, are finding them, do recommend them to people who are studying because you can use podcasts as part of your referencing. Um, so we're coming to the edge, end, actually, of Series 6 and looking ahead to Series 7. It's kind of hard to believe. Um, we're still mm. very keen to have people come on and uh, we're thinking about how we can share the platform. Do contact us through our website if you're interested and have something to say about what helpful social work means to you. And I think we'll try and use our kind of option for a second podcast each month to share this platform. For our primary podcast next year, um, we don't know exactly what they're going to be on yet, but we are thinking about how we can get back to more to direct practice mm. and think about particular kind of practice skills. Yeah, it feels like we could close that loop, doesn't it? That we've kind of we started off with those practical skills and then we moved into really looking at the theory. And now we can bring that all back into. So what does this mean practically um, again? So I'm looking forward to that. But today, however, we're going to talk about pregnancy and maternity as a protected characteristic under the Equality Act in England. And what that means is you're protected by law from discrimination. So the best place to start is with what the Equality and Human Rights Commission says about it. Pregnancy is the condition of being pregnant or expecting a baby, 
maternity refers to the period after the birth. It's linked to maternity leave in the employment context. In the non-work context, protection against maternity, maternity discrimination is for 26 weeks after giving birth. And this includes treating a woman unfavorably because she is breastfeeding. So that's um, important for us to know that it is actually um, linked to both the work and the non-work environment. So there's a couple of things for us to unpick here. Firstly, is this is about anyone who could be pregnant or expecting a baby and anyone who has given birth. So anyone who has a uterus and ovaries can become pregnant and give birth. And this will, of course, include transgender men or non-binary people. The other thing for us to think about is that the letter of the law is about specific situations, time limits, and only the workplace. But again, in social work, we really want to think bigger. And certainly, um, as we were researching about this topic and talking about this topic, you know, the conversation became quite broad. So in the podcast, you can expect us to broaden the discussion out to talk more widely about parenthood. And just a safety warning for people, um, we are going to be talking about things that may be quite personal for you and potentially have a personal impact. So we just wanted to um, let people know that, you know, when you start to think about pregnancy and maternity and birth and parenthood, um, it's it can be incredibly personal. So we're not um, we're not legal experts. And actually, one of the things that struck me from what Joe's just saying is that um, my grasp of this is is a little um, limited in that I know that the Equality Act primarily is about workplace protection. Um, however, there is also the element around um, discrimination in the kind of receipt of services. So, for example, I think there have been cases where a woman might have been asked to leave a cafe mm -hmm. or something because of breastfeeding. So that yes. also comes into it. Um, but the context around workplaces um, is quite helpful in thinking about why the Equality Act includes pregnancy and maternity, um, because there is still sadly a lot of discrimination um, in the workplace and 2018 the government department for business innovation and skills worked with the equality and human rights commission to research um, the, the prevalence essentially of pregnancy discrimination in the workplace and we interviewed around 3,000 employers and more than 3,000 mothers and um, more than 10% of mothers reported that they were either dismissed, made compulsorily redundant, um, where others in their workplace weren't, or treated so poorly they felt they had to leave their job. 20% uh, said that they'd experienced harassment or negative comments related to pregnancy or flexible working from their employer or colleagues. And 10% also said that their employer discouraged them from attending antenatal appointments. Um, Equality and Human Rights Commission went on to do a wider survey to understand managers' attitudes around pregnancy and maternity and found that a third of private sector employers felt that it was reasonable to ask women about their plans to have children during recruitment. 60% said that women should dis disclose whether they're pregnant during the recruitment process. Um, and getting on for half thought that women should work for an organisation for at least a year before deciding to have children. And there was also this um, myth around um, that many em employers bought into that pregnant women might take advantage of their pregnancy. Um, the other thing that around half of employers in this um, wider survey agreed with is that there's sometimes resentment amongst employees towards women who are pregnant or on maternity leave. So there's clearly this real need for protection in the workplace. 
Mm. Um, and I guess that would extend out you know, some of those attitudes. You don't leave them in the workplace, do you? Yeah, and it's really interesting for me because, of course, I'm I'm an employer in a, in a small business, um, and I recognise the strains that maternity leave can have on a small business, actually. And oh, I would say that over the years I've struggled with my own attitude towards this, that kind of, oh, you're pregnant, oh, you're pregnant, you know, kind of um, feeling that you have as an employer. But I've kind of come to a place where I recognise that being an employer is about much more than just getting a job done. It's really about actively contributing to the fabric of the society you live in by creating opportunities for people to really flourish and build lives they value. You know, it's a wonderful privilege to be an employer. And, you know, so as an employer, you're an enabler of a healthy community. And that really includes contributing to strong family networks and welcoming new members into those families. And so for me, people having children have a right to security of income and future work while they're pregnant and caring for their newborn. Um, and so I think it's I think that the issues that have been highlighted um, in the survey are real. I think that I have from time to time had those thoughts run across my head and then, you know, I've kind of given myself a stern talking to. So I, I think that it's something that employers should be able to talk more about in yeah. terms of understanding the value that people having children bring into our society and how we're, we're part of that. Yeah, so, there's something yeah. really, there's a couple of really important things here for, for social work, isn't there? Because it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a gendered profession. You know, there are many mm, exactly. more female social workers than male. Um, yep. I mean, just as an aside, protection and recognition of, of fatherhood is is still very limited as well. We do have paternity leave now, but it's quite telling, isn't it, that it's it's primarily around maternity. Um, but that um, that element of support and solidarity from um, you know between social workers around this. Um, because yes. so many of us will experience this this life stage and um, and the need mm -hmm. for support at work. I think that is really significant. And it's about all the flexibility that comes with having a newborn and returning to work and all those kind of things and managing, you know, um, expressing of milk. That's one of the things that I had to think about when I went back to work is where would I express and how would I keep those bottles sanitized and all those you know there's lots and lots of things that go into this stage um and we also need to life. make sure that people yeah. don't miss out on the opportunities to develop their their practice and their craft and their career because mm. they choose um to take time to, to have children and, and yeah. that's something that you know is very well recognized across lots of different um, yeah. professions that you can you can really miss out on career opportunities and I think social work strives to some extent to do that there's always more we can do um, but it's again something yeah. for us to be aware of around this topic. So it's really good actually you know to think as employers um, in social work what is it that we can do to make sure um, that we are you know, upholding, you know, people's right to flourish um, as as new as pregnant people and new parents. So, yeah. So if we think more broadly about parenthood and the choices around this, we know that there's in 2019, there was around eight million families with dependent children in the UK. There was two point nine million lone parent families 
And I think it's really important for us to be mindful here because, um, you know, uh, our population can have many lone parents, um, the population we serve. And so 14.9% of these families um, in the UK are lone parents and London has the highest proportion and southwest of England has the lowest. If we look at um, black households, 18.9% of them were made up of single parents with dependent children, and this was the highest percentage out of all the ethnic groups, and the lowest percentage was found amongst the Asian households at 5.7. And interestingly, households containing multiple families are the fastest growing type of household over the last two decades. So this gives us some things to think about as social workers, you know, where, what populations are we serving? which of those populations are impacted upon um, by any of those statistics, in other words, lone parents or multiple families, and how does those type of circumstances impact on their decisions to have children, um, what kind of support they're getting, what pressures there are on them when they are trying to look after these children and what support's available. And for me, you know, it's a real, um, if we think about kind of lifestyle, lifespan changes, actually being pregnant and having a child is a huge change. It's a, it's a huge milestone um, and it changes everything about your life. So therefore, the quality and the amount of support that you have and the way that you feel connected in your communities um, it's really, really important. And so I think that, you know, as social workers, really understanding what's around people when they embark on that journey is, is particularly important. Um, and the other thing for us to really start to think about is whether we're, you know, if you're, a, if you're a social worker in children's services, the pregnant, pregnancy and care of newborn babies is often contentious and complex and our involvement with parents, expectant parents and new parents at that stage of their life is not often seen as a positive thing, um, either by society and, and often by the parents themselves. Yeah, it's uh, something that you said in the past, Joe, is that, that um, idea that social work is often alongside people at the most um, significant moments of their life um, and this would definitely be be a moment for for new parents wouldn't it of, mm. um, that's really you know that will really make a mark so the change is that. profound the change from being a person who doesn't have children to being a person who does have children is is one of those profound changes in your life and the experience you have as you make that journey will really inform how able you are to take that role up. And I think that's one of the things that we should think about. There's some research around that says um, that parents, the more self-confidence, the more self-belief parents have about their ability to parent well, the more able they are to parent well, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So if you have a good, strong sense of self-efficacy about how you approach the role, um, it really does help you gather in your resources and your learning and do all the things you need to do to to fulfill the role but for a lot of the people that we work with the circumstances of our involvement particularly in children's services may really impact on that mm -hmm. self-belief people i think there is a connection isn't there between whether you've had a role model 
um, mm. an experience of, of seeing people parent well yeah. um, or not, that that has a profound impact as well. And the access that you have to them, it was interesting for me because, of course, you know, um, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant to this country and so I have no family in this country. Um, and so, therefore, I had to pull people around me during um, both my pregnancy and those early days and, indeed, still today. Um, you know, you have to create a family, make resources, and um, that can be really you, – that can, your ability to do that can be really limited by circumstances of poverty or isolation. Um, so, yeah. So I just want to think a little bit about the experience of pregnancy and childbirth. And this is where some of the kind of difficult um, elements might come in for people. So um, I'll start with the kind of straightforward um, stats around um, people having having children. So the average age of first time mothers, according to the Office of National Statistics, is 28.8 years in 2017, which was um, kind of reasonably unchanged changed for, for, the, for the few years before that. Um, the average age of fathers is uh, 33.4, so um, getting on for five years older. Um, there's around 7% of um, births in England and Wales where there's low birth weight, um, and that's that's been fairly stable for, for a while now. Um, there's There are still, um, there's still a, a reasonably high stillbirth rate, um, although it's um, in a developed country such as England, um, that is, you know, um, much, much lower than in developing countries, but 5.5 per thousand total births um, in the most deprived areas and three per thousand total births in the least deprived areas. So there's a, there's a, a real um, difference there as well. And the other thing that I found, which is um, more um, just more potentially of interest to people is that 26th of September is the most popular day to be born in England and Wales hmm. um, but that's nine months after Christmas so that would explain that um, <laughs> I also had a look um, at some of the really helpful resources that Tommy's have um, put forward around the impact of miscarriage mm. um, and and just again to, to put a bit of context around this there's an estimated one in four pregnancies that ends in miscarriage uh, one in five if if we only count people who, who realised or reported it. Um, and, um, and so again, you know, sort of for thinking about what this means for social workers, um, for us as social workers, you know, the experience of pregnancy um, and what happens around that, you know, as Joe has just said, is, is, is profoundly important part of someone's story. And, the, um, and that might be a hidden part of people's story as well. That's the other mm. thing to be really aware of. Um, and it will be a part of the story that lasts. Um, so, you know, I work with older people and it will last through through the life course um, and remain really significant. And, um, and yeah, as I say, sometimes visible, sometimes invisible. Mm. And if we're talking about protected rights um, and the Equality Act, then also we're talking about live, you know, pregnancies that continue in live births and actually there isn't the same type of protection for women who've suffered miscarriages or stillbirths. So um, it's still much more difficult to have time to recover and to manage financially if you've had miscarriages and stillbirths. 
And some women have many miscarriages, not just one, but many before they get successfully pregnant. Um, and so that is, is a phase of their, a stage of their entry into family life that is, as you say, very hidden, but also can take a toll on them physically and not really be covered by anything other than their sick days. So, you know, there's a whole area there um, around grief and loss and also uh, physical tolls on the body that we need to think of. And I think for me, yes, we need to think of it for uh, the people that we work for, but we also need to think about it for the people that we work with because, as you've said, in terms of gender, social work is a very um, female-dominated profession. And so, therefore, at any time, we'll be working with colleagues who'll be having these experiences. Really important for us to be thinking about. Yeah, and thinking about the impact on the um, the father and the, um, yes. and the partner and the wider family as well. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, um, I think for me the other the other thing for us to be thinking about is poverty and um, the impact that living in poverty can have on you if you are an expectant family um, or or new newborn you have a newborn in your family you know so if we think about the overall cost of a child <laughs> um, it makes for some 18. quite startling reason, reading doesn't it. <laughs> It certainly does. And I've got to say, I think their figures are very optimistic. Um, <laughs> but um, they're saying, including rent and childcare, it's 185000 for lone parents. And that's up 19% since 2012. So that's quite a lot. And I was um, thinking just because I... Um, you know, through through my son, I meet I meet all, all people, all sorts of people, and one of the um, young people he's close to uh, comes from a very large family, and um, one of the things she's been waiting for is to get her access to a computer through the school, and there'd been real delays in it. So while there's been COVID and there's been all of this requirement to work from home and all this kind of stuff, and there's been requirements on the local authority to provide these type of resources, it hasn't always been as easy to get it to people. And so she only got her tablet like two weeks ago right. and she was so excited, you know, like, and I just thought, yeah, that, you know, so there's, so those costs are rising and COVID is putting extra strain on as well. I think it's important for us to think about, and it's 151,000 for couples up 5.5%. I think it's really striking that it's less for couples. Yeah. Actually. So this is the Child Poverty Action Group. Um, and yeah, it's less for couples and up less for couples. Yeah. Yep. And and all of these things require thinking about, don't they, particularly from a social work context when we look at the populations we're working with. Um, childcare costs is the other thing, you know, for those requiring childcare, those costs compromise nearly, uh, comprise of a half of all of the costs for a child. And actually, those costs are spread out over the child's lifetime. So for new parents who need childcare, who are living in poverty or lone parents, it can absolutely compromise their ability to find regular well-paying work and, and help them live well. It's a, it's a real problem. Yeah, so lone parents working full time for the national living wage are 80 pounds a week short of what they need. And that gap has almost doubled um, 
Yeah, and it's the same with the statutory paternity pay, which does not allow people to to live if they're a lone parent relying on that. So, yeah, child benefit now covers less than a sixth of the cost of a child for a lone parent and barely fifth of a cost for a couple. So those figures tell us that actually, you know, entering into um, having a child and committing to that and, and raising children is, is, a, is a really big financial implication to it. Yeah, and we have the um, the two-child cap for benefits now as well across the UK, mm. although in nations other than England, um, it's been offset, I believe. Um, and that came in in 2017, so it restricts child tax credit and universal credit to the first two children in a family, with a few exceptions. Mm. Um, so I think it's no surprises that the Joseph Roundtree Foundation report that over the last 20 years, child poverty has been highest in families with three or more children. Yeah, and there's real implications for social work there, isn't there? There's awareness of the stresses on parents and families when they're having children and really considering whether things like the statutory maternity pay offered by the government will meet all the needs of the parent and child. You know, it certainly wouldn't be easy to live on that as a single parent. You know, so statutory maternity pay for the first six weeks is 90% of your weekly earnings, which is a reduction in your take-home pay at the same time as you experience more percent, more expenses. And if you have a well-paid job or you're part of a partnership, it may have a low impact. But the more marginal your pay is in the first place, the more impact it has. You know, losing 10% of a low-paid wage could make a huge difference to how you live your life with a new baby. Mm-hmm. It's £156.60p a week after the first six weeks for a period of a year. So if you choose to go back to work in a low-paid job, then you're really likely to struggle with the cost of childcare unless you have family support. And to me, this kind of all leads us into thinking, or it led me into thinking about what society is saying about who should have children. Um, because it felt to me that under this current framework, you're encouraged to have children if you can afford them, and if not, then it's made pretty difficult. So I felt like the right to a family life was tied up into income and working contributions. And that made me think, well, you know, as a species, if if we look at us just as as an animal, you know, we do need to reproduce. And Every society is required to have a group of new adults that are able to take up the burden of running society and caring for the vulnerable. And in many countries around the world, we really face the dilemma of having a reduced or negative birth rate. And the UK is one of those countries. Uh, Other countries have populations that can't be supported by the infrastructure and the resources of that country. And I don't have any answer to this very broad societal policy issue, but I just think it's worth noting that many of the remedies and supports in place to ensure people are able to have children lean favourably towards people in strong economic positions. And I think it's important that we note that because as social workers, we're often working with people who are in poverty. And so thinking about their rights to a family life and their rights to have children and how we support them, I I think is really important. And also thinking about who... Who's actually kind of accountable for those children and their thriving? Because it's not as simple as just the parents or just no. the family. Um, you know, 
we are a society, aren't we? We're a community, and mm. there, there's a shared responsibility. Um, and I just think that's a you're thinking about the ch- you know the children as our children, you know, mm. as as a, all of us playing a part in ensuring, you know, for example, you pay tax so children can be educated. You know, those thinking about that shared responsibility, I think, is really helpful. Mm. Well, because it's a shared benefit, actually. Mm. You know, we all need children. Everyone needs children to keep our communities flourishing. So therefore, the people who agree to have children, because we have a choice in this country, um, yeah, need to be supported by everybody to be for that to be able to happen and and um you know so it's so it's really complex this issue isn't it that's what i the more i started thinking of it the more i realized there was all sorts of strands everywhere and that it was important as a social worker that i understood as much as i could and that i was able to kind of articulate what i understood societal policy was saying to me about children about pregnancy about um having children in our society yeah and there's an advocacy role isn't there always for for social work around um the marginalized you know people who are marginalized um mm. advocating alongside them so that they're not um dismissed mm. um, as as parents or as um the children of parents who maybe are not seen as um you know fitting it quite right you know and mm. it within within these sort of cultural social um, norms and and that's a really that's one of the privileges of social work isn't it that you you can be alongside such diverse people um, mm. and really and really challenge and test those stereotypes and assumptions that people you know, that, that are so prevalent in societies um, the other thing, one of the things I did want to to highlight is the the role of um, social workers who have real skill and expertise in working with people during that time of pregnancy and um, and and its immediate kind of aftermath. And you know, I have friends who've worked in um, prenatal social work, and we've talked about it a little bit in one of our podcasts on the life course. Um, but I just I found this really lovely. Um, website from the National Association of Perinatal Social Workers, which is a, a USA organization. And it just has a really nice description mm. of pre-birth social work. And um, actually, the, the, the bit that really struck me is that it finishes by saying the goal of perinatal social work is to ascertain that every baby and every family is supported with competent, compassionate care. Um, but there's just such a wide range of skill and expertise that goes into this around responding to psychosocial issues that can emerge mm. during that really crucial period um, and helping um, people navigate all the challenges and the complexity and the processes and things that go around that. Um, and again, there's a really lovely phrase, perinatal social workers help with planning and nurture hope as families move towards their future. Um, and that's in spite of and alongside of sometimes those real challenges and, and grief and loss that can happen and those, um, yeah, that, that kind of uncertain time. Um, mm. so I just think that's a, it's a really wonderful role again, that social workers um, are able to bring their expertise to. And it's really interesting, Jerry, because, because, you know, I work mostly in the children's world. Ironically, the type of work you're describing um, 
is is certainly work we do, especially around helping people understand, express and cope with feelings of grief and assist them to learn to live with their new normal. But um, a lot of the work that we're doing is because we concerns we have for the well-being and the safety of the unborn child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the focus is still very much on that on the safeguarding the of the unborn child, the on the protection maybe. rather than the flourishing. Mm. And, you know, we work with the birth parents to help them care for themselves and plan for the arrival of their child. We look at resources and support and safety issues. Um, but many of the people we work with might have complications to their pregnancy, like drug or alcohol usage, domestic violence, mental health issues, or dealing with grief and loss due to the experiences of having other children taking in care in the past. And there's also usually issues around poverty being experienced prior to and during the pregnancy as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess in short, for many of the people we work with, the pregnancy and the arrival of their child is not always the kind of very popular social media ride of bump pictures and reveal parties and baby showers. You know, and I think for me, when when you live in a society that portrays such strong, strong images of motherhood and pressures people to invest huge amounts of money into parenthood. It's no wonder that for some people having a baby can really reinforce feelings of failure and distress and alienation from the communities they're living in. And so, you know, when children's services is involved during your pregnancy, there can be real stigma and shame and fear that accompany you in that pregnancy. And so as social workers, and that's why I agree with you that the work is very skilled work, because, you know, we're always aiming to help people flourish and we're always aiming to enable people's human rights and that care and control element has to be really carefully balanced and managed during these processes and we need to be really mindful of the stress our involvement places on expectant and new parents and we need to be willing to discuss that impact with them and and how we could moderate that. I think that's Um, particularly difficult isn't it when social workers can't reach for those services and that support that they know would would really help mm. Um, in those circumstances we know that there's been a real um, loss of preventative and early help services in our country and that's that's really made things so much harder and so much more challenging for social workers who who want children to thrive yeah sure start I just you know it was it just as a social worker on the ground it made a good difference to the you know and having them embedded having those centers embedded in the community um that early help work and there still is a lot of early help work out there and i guess that's the other thing we should talk about you know um, most local authorities have early have early help teams um and they are doing that supportive work with families and you know that's that exactly describes the sort of thing they're doing they assess their strengths and challenges they really assist them to access long-term supportive services and and um, assist in creating healthy and nurturing parent-child relationships. So that work is definitely happening. And yeah. particularly... And we just need, we need more of it, don't we? We need more, we do. Um, more services to wrap around that, like the drug and alcohol services and the um, yep. support for mental health yep. um, worries and all those, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, particularly when you think about um, parents um, who might have a disability who are about to have a child or um, care leavers 
Mm. who are thriving in all sorts of ways but are now pregnant and about to have a child, they may also need that additional support um, and should be able to get it, you know, without stigma or shame. Yeah, absolutely. And you've um, you mentioned when we were talking about support to adoptive parents as well as being. Mm. Like, you know, it doesn't it hasn't come into this very much, but I guess it's the same. It's sort of such a significant life um, moment, um, and you know, with all the same uncertainty and joy and anxiety. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and there is, you know, post-adoption support now. But once again, you know, one of the things that I would say is that, you know, these resources are, are small and precious and the workers who are doing it are highly skilled and doing really wonderful, innovative stuff. But um, it's always seems to be on, on a shoestring. So, yeah. Yeah, and then um, the other thing that I wanted to to flag up, sort of thinking um, about the life course and the kind of later stages of the life course is, um, we have mentioned that you know, the effect of the experience of pregnancy or not being pregnant and giving birth or not giving birth are kind of felt through the life course. And then there's also this very practical kind of impact of whether you have children or not um, in terms of just simply of your network. And uh, there is an organisation in the UK called Aging Without Children. Mm. And that organisation um, highlights that the number of people over 65 without adult children is set to rise from around 1.2 million to 2 million by 2030. And their concern is that health and social care services are um, are still very much kind of um, mm. grounded in the idea that you have family support. Yeah. And that families will fill gaps. Um, and and that, that's changing very rapidly, not just for that reason, but also because families are often more dispersed, networks are different. Um, but that means that there's, a, again, a kind of an issue for social workers to pick up on um, and to advocate around that you know, older people might find themselves um, you know, being a, there being an assumption that they've got support that doesn't actually exist. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I mean, I guess if you have children, it doesn't always run that you're going to have functional families yeah. either however yeah. and um, all of this I mean this is all again you know, um, I've got to be sort of thoughtful in this podcast that yeah. that relationship between parent and child and child and parent is um, is very often so complex isn't it um, yeah. and people um, it can be broken in many different kinds of ways mm. um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's the yeah. not making assumptions, isn't it? Um, and, and not building our social policy on, on this idea of a, um, you know, that, that sort of, I guess you could say in quotes, traditional family. But it, what that means is a stereotypical family, really. Mm. It's a it's a um, it's so open to discrimination. Yeah, I was just about to say exactly the same thing. You know, we have to be so mindful that we don't build our responses as social workers on a stereotypical idea of what we have um, about pregnancy, family, all those things. Yeah. And the other thing that we haven't talked about is the importance of choice. You know, at the moment, there are struggles in many parts of the world to ensure you have a choice about pregnancy. Um, and a lot of what we've been talking about, once again, one of the things that we've been assuming is that that this is being entered by choice, but actually lots of pregnancies and births are not entered in by choice, um, and that also has an impact on people. And it's interesting that the opportunity to choose whether or not to have a child is correlated with education. 
So the World Bank reports that better educated women tend to be more informed about nutrition and health care and have fewer children marry at a later age. And their children are usually, usually healthier should they choose to become mothers. They're more likely to be able to participate in formal labour markets, which I think is really important, you know, not um, in the gig economy or in other, you know, zero hour places. And they can earn higher incomes, which once again, if you think about the statutory maternity pay, if you're only getting 90%, it's, it's good if you've got a high starting figure, you know, um, and all these factors can really um, can combine to lift households, holds and communities and countries out of poverty. Um, and the one thing that wasn't talked about there, but I had thought about was also um, access to birth control mm-hmm. and, you know, the knowledge and the kind of agency over your own body to feel that you can use birth control is another really important part of how you enter um, pregnancy and um, becoming a and parenthood. Yeah, and the choice and the experience and the outcomes are so um so intersectional, aren't they? Um, that yeah, all those different factors around people's identity and experience and opportunities come together to to impact on on that part of their life mm-hmm. story. So for you know, once again, as a social work practitioner, when you're doing life stories, when you're doing um, when you're doing timelines with families, when you're finding out about how families came to be, you've got to be really mindful of the start of all of these things and, you know, all the way along that story, um, there can be, you know, stories of of trauma and difficulty um, that you need to be kind of curious and mindful about in terms of how you deal with them. So for me, you know, this is just the more I think about this topic, the more I become aware of how much of it is really tied into my value base and what I think about parents and the contributions they make to society and about children and the contributions they make. And for me, there's so many factors here, my own experience, socioeconomic status, the values that are put on that, the right to a family, who gets to decide, who is able to have a family, the role that poverty and education play and who gets pregnant and how often and how safely. You know, I think as a social worker, we need to continually educate ourselves about social policy and the impact it has on people we work with. We really need to understand what our position is and how it can play into keeping some people, you know, on the edge or marginalised. Yeah, something that's so um, encouraging in that is that our code of ethics is it's really comprehensive and we've talked a bit as we've gone through this series about the Equality Act is a, is a helpful framework, um, but it's, it doesn't go anything like as far as the the ethics and the considerations that social workers need to bring to their work. Mm. Um, and, and I think the Equality Act kind of helpfully sets out some protections for people with particular characteristics. Uh, we also need to be really thoughtful about people who fall just outside or outside of that and how we um, live up to the kind of broader Human Rights Act um, expectation that people will be free from discrimination and also our own code of ethics around not just mm. not discriminating but challenging mm. oppression as well. Um, and I suppose that the main thing that struck me about this conversation is just how significant this, this part of people's life story is, um, not just yeah. for them but for society. And and I guess the the, the impact on social workers of that, of working with people about something so profound and personal and also 
the resonance of that with our own lives. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think we, we do need to be really carefully reflecting all the time about, you know, the meeting of our own life and the meeting of the lives of the people we're working with. Um, yeah, and I think this this is um, you know it's this is something that is is reflective of the whole series and of all elements of people's identity, isn't it? There's that mm. um, that um, awareness of people's experience and the impact on them, and that openness and empathy and understanding, and also the awareness of our limitations and the resonance with us um, and the relational kind of um, aspect of of that. Um, yeah, which is why social work is not a task, is it? It's a, it's a relationship. 